<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Last week, the president of Mexico called and wanted me to come down and advise him. And while we were down there, he suggested I should run for president. And so I've decided that I'm throwing my hat into the ring and running for president. So, you know, like to get your thoughts on who should be my running mate. No, no, April Fools. Okay, come on. Tom Hartman here with you. My deadline is today to turn in a new book that will be coming out next spring called The Hidden History of the War on Voting in the United States. And I really wanted to take a week and just finish this damn book. I'd been working on it for a while. And... Also, my brother and his wife and their two kids had rented a house down in Mexico for a vacation. The Island of Women is the name in Spanish, off the coast of Cancun. And so we were there for the week. Louise and I and two of our kids and their partners and my brother and his wife. And we had a really nice time. I recommend it. And one of the things that I found most interesting was looking around the island as we were walking around the tourist shops and things. And also back in Cancun. There are refrigerator magnets that say F.U. Donald, only they spell it out. Uh, there are T-shirts that say it in Spanish and even comments about his mother. <laughs> it's, it's pretty remarkable. It, it wasn't like it was, you know, widespread. And the tourist areas, I think that they're probably a little more cautious because they're, you know, Trump supporters as well who are tourists. But it was an interesting experience. Anyhow, well, there's a lot in the news today. Cecile Richards is going to drop by, which opens my first topic. What I'm curious to get your take on, which is this whole thing with Lucy Flores and uh, Joe Biden. I, I have some very strong, I have a very strong opinion about this, and I may be wrong. I don't know, but you know, I wanted to just put it out there and then you know get your take and your thoughts on it. Uh, Lucy Flores is, if you've been. Living under a rock, you haven't noticed this, but it's been all over the news for a couple of days now. A, she was an outspoken Bernie supporter. B, Biden campaigned for her when she was running for lieutenant governor of, what was it, Nevada. You know, so they, they campaigned together. And so there are people who are trying to make this political. Basically, what happened was Biden was standing behind her 
as they were about to go on stage, and he put his hands on her shoulder and smelled her hair and kissed the top of her head, or something close to that. And there's like no shortage of little video clips floating around the internet of Biden doing the exact same thing over the decades. And I've met Joe Biden, Louise has met Joe Biden. I was at a small event, maybe 25, 30 people that he was speaking to. This was when we lived in Washington, D.C. And he came over and you know, I, I, I feel his hand on my shoulder and I stand up and he takes my hand with his other hand and he's like kind of holding me as we're talking. And he did the same thing with Louise. And it didn't feel creepy, but then I'm a guy. Louise didn't feel particularly creeped out about it. But I think what's actually going on here, this thing of invading the private space, particularly of women, older men doing this, what we're looking at is the last gasp of patriarchy. That Joe Biden grew up in a world where... I mean, you know, I remember in the early 1970s when I was running a business and Louise was, she and a guy named Terry O'Connor, my partners in this business, and I could get a credit card, but she couldn't unless I co-signed because I was the man. I mean, this was back in the days when one of our first hires for our company was a, uh, essentially what today you would call a receptionist, back then it was called a secretary. And you put an ad in the paper and they'd say, uh, you know, do you want it in the men wanted section or the women wanted section? So it was a very different world. And men had power. And I mean, they still do. Let's just acknowledge this. Men had power in that time. And part of that male privilege that's associated with that was having the power and not being aware of its impact on other people. I think that this is a variation on Joe Biden saying back in the day that Barack Obama was articulate. Um, and, and he meant it as a compliment. And I think that when Joe Biden was, you know, hugging and kissing Lucy Flores, he meant it as affection. He didn't mean it sexually, in my opinion, from having seen this. But I think that because men have had this power, that it's almost like it's a paternalistic thing. It is condescending, but it's not intended as condescending. And I'm really struggling to exactly describe this. Other than to say that I think that what you're looking at here is Biden living out throughout his life, this patriarchy where men were kind of big daddies and they took care of people, women, families, children. It's not quite the infantilization of women. He was like basically saying that he was the powerful guy and he was giving his blessing or his bestowing his affection as a gesture, as a gift, essentially, to this woman. And I totally get it how somebody on the receiving end of that who doesn't view an older white man as role model or as a mentor or as as a father figure essentially would be totally offended by that and i think that this is an extraordinary and positive opportunity as a learning moment as we make this transition and this has really just happened in the last decade or so in a big way you know the whole me too thing and some of it in response to harvey weinstein now he represents the extreme end of that where as a man, he was basically able to say to any young woman who came within his grasp that if 
she wanted a role in a movie, if she wanted to become famous, if she wanted to become wealthy, she had to have sex with him. And he's now claiming, Weinstein is claiming that, well, it was all consensual because it was basically, that was the deal. This is nothing like that, except that it's also the tail end of men have power and nobody else does. Women don't, children don't, people of color don't, white men have power, and, or at least more power than anybody else. And as people are you know, getting that and waking up to that, they're starting to push back. And I think the next couple of days, Biden's response has been, you know, that, hey, I never you know, intentionally did this. And, you know, we'll see whether this turns into, you know, that one, that teaching moment or if it, it devolves into a kind of crass partisan. Well, she was a Bernie supporter. How dare she kind of thing? Because there's people, you know, kind of pushing both sides of that. But it seems to me that, you know, he's living out a world that is dying. The guy's 76 years old. The world in which he grew up, and this is a man who, for most of his adult life, has had an extraordinary amount of power and fame and access to even greater power. And he thinks, I'm quite confident, that by being affectionate, by reaching out, that he's the good guy. Plus, he's just, and you know, I don't know if this is the case with Al Franken or not, people have made the analogy, but he's also, I can tell you, from having met Joe Biden and from Louise, you know, her take from having met Joe Biden, he's an extremely kinesthetic guy. Everything is about feelings. He talks the language of feelings. And kinesthetic people tend to touch a lot, which, is, again, is not to pardon or forgive it. So, you know, that's my take on it. I think that we're, we're seeing essentially the last gasp of patriarchy here. On the one hand... On the other hand, we've got a guy in the White House right now who has over 20 women who have charged him with sexual assault, who has bragged on tape of walking up to women and kissing them unsolicited and grabbing their crotches, and not only never apologized for it, but has slurred or slandered those women, has attacked those women. And there's, there's a lawsuit moving against him right now. I think it's Summer Zervos is the, is the lawsuit going against him. So there's, I suppose, another context, which is, are we holding Joe Biden to a completely different standard than Donald Trump? Now, I would flip that over. I would flip that upside down, and I would say it's damn time to have this conversation about patriarchy and power in our society, white male patriarchy. And it's time to start holding Donald Trump to accountable, and people like him as well which is probably not going to happen in the conservative world and the Republican world. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And this is where it has the potential to get really interesting if this conversation migrates at all into the Republican world. Carol in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Carol, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I'd like to layer something on top of what you just talked about, because that was very meaningful to me, because I've gone through from the beginning, and I spent most of my life in a probably male-dominated world. But what I found over the years is you can take two guys that you know, and let's say that you work with, and one of them can tell you a joke can uh, touch your shoulder, uh, can whatever, have a conversation about something that might be considered kind of risque, 
and you are not insulted. And the guy sitting next to him can actually repeat exactly what that guy said, and it creeps you out. Hmm. And in this case, Donald Trump would creep me out. Joe Biden wouldn't bother me a bit. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Louise was telling me, reminding me, when we moved to Atlanta in uh, 1980-something, whatever, 82, I guess it was, or 83, and started a travel agency, and she ran the business. She and I started it together, and by the third year, I spent a year at home writing and watching the kids, and she literally, I mean, not just ran the business, she was always the CEO, but she was there all day, every day, you know, running this business. And this was in Atlanta, Georgia, this was the South. And she said these uh, like copy machine sales guys, you know, the people who sell business to business. This one guy came in and called her sweetie and put his hand on her, and she just took his head off. You know, she said, I am not your sweetie. He was like, oh, you don't need to get all offended, little, little lady. And she's like, I'm not a little, you know, that kind of thing. Boy, I get it. So I think that's what we're seeing. And I think, I think it's great that women are coming out and talking about things. But then I think we also have to talk about why. And I don't, I don't want to say some men can get away with it. I think it, has, it all has to do with respect. And if they're treating you as an equal in this whole transaction, it's fine. But then there's the guy that isn't treating you as, as an equal. He's treating you as an object. Yeah, and there's a subtext there. There's a subtext about, is this a sexual come on? Is this a romantic come on? Is this condescending? That's the word I was looking for. Yes. Is the person speaking out of a sense of power superiority as opposed to power equality? Yes. Those are the things that the, essentially... Perfectly said. Yeah, okay. As a man, I mean, I've, meeting with, talking to more powerful men, in business situations principally over the years, there have been times where I felt like a man was basically getting in my space, you know, like with a handshake then, specifically to assert power over me. And others obviously don't. That's a really good point. You know, so there's a lot of subtlety involved here. Carol, thank you. That's a really important point. Thank you so much for the call. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every Every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1 844 4X Chair. X Chair comes with a 30 day no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWheels and you'll receive a free set of the new X Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. On the line with us is Cecile Richards, the national leader uh, for women's rights and social economic justice. She's the former president of Planned Parenthood, a heroine of the resistance. As Vogue magazine says, she spent a lifetime of fighting for social justice and women's rights. Her new book, Make Trouble, Stand Up, Speak Out, and Find the Courage to Lead, is a brilliant memoir. Cecile Richards, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you, Tom. It's nice to be back on. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into your book, this whole controversy around Joe Biden, it mm -hmm. strikes me that this is kind of the last gasp of patriarchy. And I don't mean that as a hit on Joe Biden, that 
in his world, powerful white men could confer their blessing on less powerful people in a way. And I'm guessing that was probably more his meaning or affection, I guess, I suppose. But actually, you know, might take it a little more complicated than that. But I'm curious what your take is on this. Yeah, no, I do think the world is changing and it's time that women and the issues of sexual assault and harassment have been in the shadows for so long. And the fact that now women are feeling the confidence and support to be able to tell their stories and also just talk about behavior that makes them uncomfortable. It is a new day. And I think that's really what you're seeing, not just in that particular instance of a woman saying this has made her uncomfortable, but just women now feeling that they can kind of expect to be treated as equals. And that's, for many of us, it's time. So I'm grateful. I hope that young women, you know, my daughters and, you know, uh, other young women will live in a different environment where sexual harassment and just unwanted attention is not acceptable. Yeah. Amen. Now, you grew up in a very political family. Your mother was the, <laughs> was the governor of Texas. And just to kind of follow up on that with a political frame, we've got a guy right now in the White House who is yeah. on tape openly bragging about kissing women just totally unsolicited and grabbing them by the crotch, among other things, and who has over 20 women who have charged sexual assault against him, who has paid off a porn right. star and a Playboy bunny for keeping quiet affairs. I mean, just <laughs> it's as bad as it gets in the White House. And not a single Republican is willing to basically, you know, I mean, you know, Bob Corker said something about that and boom, he was gone. And uh, Jeff Flake, you know, among other things. And I'm wondering if you think that are your thoughts on this being a conversation that is largely limited to the Democratic Party as opposed to a more American conversation? Or how do we bring Republicans into this conversation? Or are they, you know, are they still operating in 1950s world? It is incredible to me, the double standard and, yeah, the things that the president has said. It's funny you mentioned my mom, you know, which I mean, when she ran for governor of Texas, you know, she ran against a guy who made jokes about rape and, you know, and he almost got elected. And there are definitely parallels with what we're seeing today. I think what's important about all this to me is that women have had enough and we are seeing, obviously, we've seen record numbers of women marching. I think the last estimate I saw was that one in five people in this country have marched or protested since the last election. And the single most important issue has been women's rights. So I do believe that to the extent that, you know, the Republican Party has been ignoring this problem and that, that the president himself has made such kind of this is really out of step with where the American people are. And it is galvanizing and energizing women in a way I have like I have never seen in my life. Yeah. As the former president of Planned Parenthood, I'm curious your take on these personhood bills that will criminalize abortion in many cases mm -hmm. before women even realize that they're pregnant. And I saw a, a picture of a woman holding a sign. I saw it online this morning. And mm -hmm. uh, the sign said, as I recall, if we live in a world where a fertilized egg is a person, but a refugee seeking asylum is not, we've got a problem. I'm curious your thoughts on those two issues and, and if they're, you know, if it's appropriate to conflate them. Well, I certainly, I think the issue of how we treat people and the dehumanization, whether it is of immigrants, of people from different um, ethnic and racial backgrounds, whether it is LGBTQ community, I think that is something that is 
distressing for everyone. On this issue of the restrictions on both safe and legal abortion and even now birth control, because you know that the administration's now announced a domestic gag order uh, for even folks who provide birth control. This is something, again, that I just would say is completely out of touch with where the American people are. And the interesting thing, these bills we're seeing, these personhood bills, you know, even in states like South Dakota and Mississippi, when I was at Planned Parenthood, those were overwhelmingly defeated by the voters. And so the legislatures may be doing these things and passing these extreme bills, but I do believe there's going to be political consequences because the vast majority of people in this country believe that the decisions about a pregnancy should be made by the pregnant person and their medical professionals. To what extent do you think that the Roe decision interrupted, might have interrupted a political process that might have led us to, on the one hand, that might have led us to, mm-hmm. you know, the states legalizing abortion and, and basically having the debate and putting it all to rest on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, that rapid intervention of the Roe decision probably saved thousands of women's lives. How do we parse that? What does all that mean? And what do you think? I mean, are we going to end up in a, in a country where basically we've got two different kinds of states that are very culturally, socially, and legally different? We already live in that country. I yeah. mean, your point is really right that I think it's too late to go back and, you know, I, I, relitigate like how the road decision came up but you're right in large part that was in an environment where young healthy women were dying in emergency rooms across this country and i you can still meet doctors who remember doing their residency when that was happening and that's that's the important thing is of course that it's not that abortion i mean if you make abortion illegal it doesn't end it simply means it goes into back alleys um it goes into unsafe places and so i think that 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 essentially this country does believe that abortion should be safe and legal and also that birth control should be more available to everyone. And I'm so proud of the work we did getting birth control covered under the Affordable Care Act. There's now more than 62 million women that have access to no-cost birth control. We have the lowest rate of teenage pregnancy in history. There's so many good things happening that I can't figure out why these legislatures, instead of championing that work, are actually making it harder for women to get access to reproductive health care. But you're right. We live in a country now where, you know, depending on your zip code, uh, that really dictates whether you have full reproductive access. Yeah, it's an extraordinary time. It really is. We're talking with yep. Cecile Richards, her new book, Make Trouble, Stand Up, Standing Up, Speaking Out, and Finding the Courage to Lead, a brilliant personal memoir of an extraordinary life. Cecile, what, what is the major message that you would like people to know about you, about your life, and about this book? Well, I, I wrote the book, Tom, because so many people were stopping me after the election. They stopped me on the street and on the subway and say, what am I supposed to do? And because I think everyone felt like they needed to do something to try to turn the direction of the country around. And so I thought instead of doing it and talking to every individual, I just write it in a book. And so it is really, it is a memoir, but it's also, I hope, um, sort of a call to action, if you will, a little bit of a handbook of what you can do if you want to actually make a difference. And the other piece of this to me that's important because I've had the luxury or you know privilege of working in social justice my whole life is it's a joyful space to work in. And it makes you feel a lot better than just yelling at the television set. Uh, you go out, you can make a difference, you can make change, and you meet amazing people along the way. And that's what I'm seeing women say all across the country, that the joy they're finding at this moment in time in our country where so many really um, horrific things are happening uh, from our government, 
that they are finding joy and solace in taking action and taking it with other women. It's one of the classic tenets of, of psychotherapy is that action, you know, is one of the best ways to interrupt the rumination and depressive processes of responding to uh, what might otherwise be uh, grief is perhaps the wrong word, but you right. know, it didn't work out the way we want. And therefore, what do we do? Do we sit around and beat ourselves up or do we get out and do something? And it's such mm -hmm. powerful stuff. Uh, Cecile Richards, the website, by the way, CeceliRichardsBook.com, the Twitter handle, at Cecile Richards. The book is Make Trouble, Stand Up, Speak Out, and Find the Courage to Lead, an extraordinary book. Cecile Richards, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tom. And for, care. And for writing a great book. Yeah, you too. Thank you again. Andrea in Reno, Nevada. Hey, Andrea, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to first tell you I agree with Cecile, what she was saying. But also, I appreciate what you're doing, too. About today's topic, I think you're giving Joe Biden excuses. I have to ask, Tom, where along the life of a 76-year-old, very popular male politician, has he not learned to err on the side of caution with all the millions of women that he's come in contact with? Well, I do think it's subjective. I think there are lessons that he needs to learn in life. He's not learning them. Apparently. It just really upsets me because why hasn't he learned that women have boundaries, that they needed to be treated like equals, that you have to know the boundaries of women in politics. Even though she was being helped by him, I, I don't understand why he could just, you know, let everything go and just say, well, you know, I'm going to be myself with her and sniff her hair. And it creeps me out. I don't like yeah. Joe Biden. I don't like him from Anita Hill. My stomach turns at that, but I do think it's also very subjective. And I, I think we give Democrats, I think we give them wide berth, hmm. male Democrats. Yeah, yeah. And well, it's, we're going to see, I think, in the next few days, probably. I doubt this is going to last more than a few days if Joe Biden basically learns from this gets it. I mean, I, I don't think anybody is suggesting, and certainly Lucy Flores, uh, I saw her on TV twice this morning, and in both cases she was saying, I am not suggesting that there was anything sexual about this. I'm not suggesting that I felt assaulted. It was my personal space was invaded. And I think we've all had that experience of somebody being just a little too close and feeling uncomfortable. But I think your point that this guy throughout his life has probably had a lot of opportunities to learn that that's often unwelcome. On the other hand, sometimes it's probably very welcome. I don't know, but, you know, I get it. Andrea, thank you for the call. I was telling the story of Louise back, my wife, you know, back in the 1980s, we started a travel agency in Atlanta, and by the second or third year of the, of the company, we started it together, but we took turns throughout the years, staying home for a year with the kids, and I stayed home with the kids for a year, and she was running the business, and she came home one day and told me the story about this uh, copy machine sales guy who came by the travel agency, and... It was trying to sell her a copy machine or rent it, lease it, whatever. And he was calling her a little lady and uh, a sweetie pie and stuff like that. And she just got very offended and basically took his head off. And, you know, there's that, right? That kind of condescending thing. There's also a power thing. Donald Trump, in his book, Art of the Deal, I believe, it's in one of his books. Anyway, I haven't read his books, but I've heard it quoted on TV and radio. Donald Trump talks about how when he shakes somebody's hand, he will try to grab them fast and hard and pull them toward him as a way of dominating them. So, I mean, there are issues of dominance here that are often explicit, you know, like when Donald Trump does it. Again, I'm not suggesting that Joe Biden was trying to assert dominance. 
I really think that he thought that he was being either affectionate or that he was saying, not in a condescending way, I, the powerful man, approve of you. Something like that. Without it, only that sounds creepy. But anyhow, enough of my thoughts. I've been rambling about this. Let's pick up yours. Debbie in Wheeling, Illinois. Hey, Debbie, what's on your mind? Hi. I was hearing about this, and to me, the man grew up in an era where everybody was affectionate, and we weren't afraid to hug one another, excuse me, and, and shake people's hands. It's just, I think, a generational thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I, I agree I, with you on that, Debbie, and that was my point. That, but I think that what's happened is that the, the generation that I grew up in was a generation where patriarchy was the norm. It was just the water everybody swam in. And this generation of young people coming up, they're saying, uh, you know, take your patriarchy and, and put it outdoors, please. Whatever. I uh, more, you know, coarser ways of saying that. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't believe he was being treacherous or had any dubious thought. I think it was just him greeting a person and, and in an affectionate way. Yeah. I mean, everybody in Europe kisses one another on both sides of the face. I mean, it's no big deal to them. So. Yeah. And and like with anything, it can be done in a way that is or isn't creepy, I suppose. Debbie, thank you. Well said. Margie in uh, Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Hey, Margie. Hey. um, When talking about power differences, this has not gone away, uh, as demonstrated by what happened to me last week. Somebody called the police on me because I was a female in a truck stop two nights in a row. I was I was at the same truck stop two nights in a row, and somebody called the police on me. Oh, they thought that you were being a prostitute. Yep. And yeah. you're a trucker, Margie. Oh, I'm a truck driver. I'm an owner operator. <laughs> I've been a driver for ten years. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's the old that's double what standard. I woke up in the morning too. Yes, absolutely. Oh, or amazing. W- women are not allowed in men- male spaces. Yeah, yeah, and and I would think that that's probably a, one of the worlds where. Uh, patriarchy is dying much more slowly than than in the rest of the world. Margie, thank you for sharing your story with us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-G-O-L-D. 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Our book today is Can We All Be Feminists? It's a collection of essays edited by Jane Eric Udori. First essay is from Charlotte Shane. It's called No Wave Feminism. If you feel like feminism is failing you, you're not alone. 
I sometimes have the impression that I'm as thoroughly feminist as I am thoroughly human. The feminism is as, as intrinsic to my constitution as my skeleton is to my body. But in my 35 years, I've struggled with or outright rejected feminism on several occasions. First, as an ignorant adolescent, what do women need feminism for if they already got the vote? Then, as a sex worker who saw how regularly and even gleefully feminists stoked the public's long-standing antipathy toward professionally sexual women. And now again, as someone moving even further into the far left, who cannot abide the forms of feminism that embrace and are complicit with the worst aspects of liberalism. The more I learn about the intersecting oppressive forces that continue to shape the Western world, colonialism, patriarchy, capitalism, xenophobia, and racism, and the network of cruel social machinery to which these systems give rise, incarceration, crippling debt, disenfranchisement, deportation, and so on, the less sense it makes to use gender as the primary lens through which to regard human-engineered suffering. Feminism doesn't feel like the sharpest weapon to wield against white supremacy or border policing, for instance, or even the best tool with which to approach basic civic concerns like vibrant schools. That's not because those issues don't impact women. Obviously, they directly and indirectly impact many. But they don't necessarily impact women more or in dramatically different ways than they do men. In other words, the most significant challenges these issues present aren't tethered to one's sex. And so prioritizing gender above other aspects of identity limits one's realm of ethical responses. Here's an example. American prisons often keep female prisoners shackled while they give birth. There are variations on the theme. Some women are shackled during labor. Some are unshackled, but then shackled again almost immediately afterward. And almost all are shackled while heavily pregnant. There's some variation of what shackling entails, too. It can mean being cuffed at the wrists or at the ankles or both, or cuffed to a hospital bed or chained at the waist. Articulating these details makes the sadism even starker. A class-action federal lawsuit in 2017 alleged more than 40 women at the Milwaukee County Jail suffered this horror. It was preceded by lawsuits in 2014 and 2016 against that same jail for similar practice. But the appalling practice is hardly confined to one city or one state. In 2015, New York prisons were found to be shackling prisoners in labor in spite of a state law that made it illegal to do so. And according to a 2016 report by the Prison Birth Project and Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts, Jails and prisons in Massachusetts were guilty of similar violations. Most feminists probably agree that this is a feminist issue. The topic accordingly receives coverage on feminist websites and sometimes in women's magazines. But does a feminist obligation to attend to the rights of the imprisoned extend only as far as pregnancy and labor? Is it a feminist issue when a non-pregnant woman is shackled? Or when she is caged for years and exploited for her labor, denied face-to-face -face visits from loved ones, held captive in a compound in the name of, quote, justice? If the answer to these questions is yes, then it is also a feminist issue. Then is it also a feminist issue when men are shackled during various health emergencies, seizures, say? In 2014, a male inmate in Colorado died after undergoing several seizures while in restraints and receiving no medical treatment. Is it a feminist issue when incarcerated men are denied the right to visit with family or exploited for their labor? Is it a feminist issue when so many men are raped while in prison? Or does feminism's responsibility begin and end with gender-based mistreatment? The feminists hired by prominent media outlets often advocate for measures that would result in higher levels of incarceration. They write op-eds in favor of further criminalization around sex work and call for longer prison sentences for men convicted of assault. 
which we've known for decades is not necessarily synonymous with men who committed the crime. They also disturbingly relish the theater of sentencing, like that enacted by Judge Rosemary Aquilinia, who told serial sexual abuser Larry Nassar that if she could, she would allow some or many people to do to him what he did to others. So sexual violation is an atrocity unless it happens to the right person. They capitalize on women's justified fear and anger around mistreatment by men to shore up the status quo, to suggest that our current problems are not the result of fundamentally unjust institutions, but rather institutions that are only incidentally sexist. That means that those same institutions could become less so with the right adjustments, like more draconian sentencing for crimes against women, or more female judges. But the prison system is racist and brutal by design, not by accident or mismanagement. Just as the court system regularly fails the most vulnerable because it was built to protect the powerful. The challenge of the 21st century is not to demand equal opportunity to participate in the machinery of oppression, revolutionary thinker Angela Davis has written. Rather, it is to identify and dismantle those structures. Yet leveraging our existing legal system for criminalization remains the go-to strategy for most feminists when it comes to dealing with objectionable behavior. The book, Can We All Be Feminists? It's a collection of essays edited by Jane Eric Udori. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th district of the state of California, kind of Silicon Valley territory. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov, is Twitter handle, Rep Ro, R-O, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Tom, it's always a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. We've been talking about how our standards for personal space, private space are changing. Nobody's suggesting that Joe Biden is a sexual predator or anything even close to that. And neither is Lucy Flores, for that matter. But it seems to me like this is a cultural inflection point, at least in the Democratic Party or among people who are inclined to vote Democratic. On the other hand, over on the Republican side, it seems like you know, they're still just fine with literally a groper in the White House, a guy who has 20 women who've charged him with sexual assault, a lawsuit actively going, you know, several of them going against him and his actively bragging about that as an OK thing. And it's just a, a wild, weird kind of almost psychedelic thing. You know, it's kaleidoscopic. It's this clash, this contrast. I'm curious your thoughts, A, on Biden and B, on the larger political context. Yeah. Well, I think you put it very well, Tom. I mean, the contrast here couldn't be more stark as progressives and those who lean democratic or care about women's rights or uh, trying to hold us up to a much higher standard. It seems uh, the Republicans are going the other way with Trump, almost celebrating anachronistic views towards women as a reaction towards women's rights. So it's just a, a, a total uh, a double standard in terms of what they do and what we do. That said, I think we should be uh, at a higher standard. I applaud Lucy Flores's courage for telling the story. I believe her story, and I believe that she is trying to effectuate a cultural change to say, look, these types of things that uh, some may have thought were uh, appropriate actually make people feel objectified and uncomfortable uh, and are wrong. And 
my view would be that the vice president should acknowledge uh, that what he did was wrong and that uh, he's learned from it and he's learned that there's a cultural change that uh, we need in this country that uh, further respects women. Uh, and I think if he did that, which is what Lucy Flores has asked for, uh, that uh, there'd probably be a lot of understanding and forgiveness. Uh, it seems to me from Lucy Flores's comments uh, uh, that what she's really looking for is an acknowledgement that a mistake was made and that change is needed. Yeah. Edward in Columbus, Indiana, watching us on Free Speech TV, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. We're saving money by going to renewable energy. Huge amounts of money all around the world. Robert, you're absolutely right. In fact, I make this point all the time. Look, when you look at the lithium-ion battery prices, they've gone down from $1,200 a megawatt to $200 a megawatt. It means the cost curve is suggesting that electric vehicles are going to happen. They're economically efficient. The cost curve for solar and wind have been going down, and eventually they're going to be economically efficient. So the question really is, are other countries going to lead in the energy sources of the future, or is the United States? I mean, why do you think China is putting so much money into solar and wind and electric vehicles? It's not just out of their sense of ecological responsibility. It's economics. They understand that those are going to be the industries of the future. And that's a point worth repeating over and over again here, that the economics of future industries dictate that we take some of these steps. Michael in Princeton, Minnesota. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Did you see the 60-minute story on even wanting to bring back the mammoth up north to the Arctic Circle to trample down the ground so that it freezes like it's supposed to and keep the CO2 in the ground? And as far as my question, quickly, I'd like to know under what inherent power does Trump have to not implement sanctions against Russia when our Congress is implementing sanctions? I'm wondering if he could explain that. Well, Michael, my understanding is that the Congress has passed sanctions and the president is obligated to implement them. Are they particular sanctions that the president has waived or discretion on? I need to check into that. But I, my understanding is that we have passed these sanctions and that the president's obligated to implement them. I believe there are some, and forgive me, it's been a month or three, but I believe that there are some that were passed by Congress that he has either not implemented or not fully implemented and some others that he was stalling on for quite some time earlier in his administration. I'm not sure the exact status right at this moment, though. No, I'll look into it. As caller raises a good point. I mean, at times, Congress gives the president discretion. This time, I think we were pretty clear that there had to be sanctions, and particularly sanctions on, for the interference. And I will uh, check in with my foreign policy advisor to see the status of that. Thoughts on any country's interference in our election coming up? Well, I think the challenge is that our tech platforms are still vulnerable to interference, and it's not just the Russians. It could be any other country. I don't want to throw out countries and just speculate and, and tarnish them on a hypothetical. But the point is we need to safeguard our tech platforms. Uh, we need to make sure that campaigns are safeguarded from interference because it sows discord within the country, and that's uh, often the objectives of people who don't want to see America succeed. Amen. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. 
Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash tom to learn more. Our book today is uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence by Kristen Godsey. And this is from the introduction titled, You Might Be Suffering from Capitalism. The argument of this book can be summed up succinctly. Unregulated capitalism is bad for women. And if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women will have better lives. If done properly, socialism leads to economic independence, better labor conditions, better work family balance, and yes, even better sex. Finding a way into a better future requires learning from the mistakes of the past, including a thoughtful assessment of the history of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. That's it. If you like the idea of such outcomes, then come along for an exploration of how we might change things. If you're dubious because you don't understand why capitalism as an economic system is uniquely bad for women, and if you doubt that there could ever be anything good about socialism, this short treatise will provide some illumination. If you don't give a wit about women's lives because you're a gynophobic right-wing internet troll, save your money and go back to your parents' basement right now. This isn't the book for you. Of course, some might argue that unregulated capitalism sucks for almost everyone, but I want to focus on how capitalism disproportionately harms women. Competitive labor markets discriminate against those whose reproductive biology makes them primarily responsible for childbearing. Today, this means humans who get pink hats in the hospital and the letter F next to the name on the birth certificate, as if we've already failed by not coming into the world as a boy. Competitive labor markets also devalue those expected to be the primary caregivers of children. Although societal attitudes have evolved in this regard, our idealization of motherhood means that most of us still believe that baby needs mama a whole lot more than papa, at least until the child is old enough to play sports. Others will argue that unregulated capitalism is not bad for all women. Yes, for those women lucky enough to sit at the top of the income distribution, the system works pretty well. Although women at the executive level still face gender pay gaps and remain underrepresented in leadership positions, on the whole, things aren't too shabby for the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Of course, sexual harassment still hinders progress, even for those at the top, and too many women believe that if you want to run with the big dogs, you may have to suck it up and ignore the groping and unwanted advances. And race plays an important role as well. White women do a lot better in aggregate than do women of color. But when we look at society as a whole, on average, women are comparatively worse off in countries where markets are less encumbered by regulation, taxation, and public enterprises than they are in nations where state revenues support greater levels of redistribution and larger social safety nets. Choose your data source and you find the same story. Unemployment and poverty plague women with children. Employers discriminate against women without children because they might have them in the future. In the United States in 2013, women over the age of 65 suffered from poverty at much greater rates than men and dominated those in the category of extreme poverty. Globally, women face higher rates of economic deprivation. Women are often the last to be hired and the first to be fired in cyclical downturns. And when they do find employment, bosses pay them less than men. When states need to slash government spending on education, health care, or old age pensions, mothers, daughters, sisters, and wives must pick up the slack diverting their energy to care for the young, the sick, and the elderly. Capitalism thrives on women's unpaid labor in the home because women's care 
work supports lower taxes. Lower taxes mean higher profits for those already at the top of the income ladder, mostly men. But capitalism was not always so savage. Throughout much of the 20th century, state socialism presented an existential challenge to the worst excesses of the free market. The threat posed by Marxist ideologies forced Western governments to expand social safety nets to protect workers from the unpredictable but inevitable booms and busts of the capitalist economy. After the Berlin Wall fell, many celebrated the triumph of the West, consigning socialist ideas to the dustbin of history. But for all its faults, state socialism provided an important foil for capitalism. It was in response to a global discourse of social and economic rights, a discourse that appealed not only to the progressive populations of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but also to many men and women in Western Europe and North America, that politicians agreed to improve working conditions for wage laborers, as well as to create social programs for children, the poor, the elderly, the sick, and the disabled, mitigating exploitation and the growth of income inequality. Although there are, were important antecedents in the 1980s, once state socialism collapsed, capitalism shook off the constraints of market regulation and income redistribution. Without the looming threat of a rival superpower, the last 30 years of global neoliberalism have witnessed a rapid shriveling of social programs that protect citizens from cyclical instability and financial crises and reduce the vast inequality of economic outcomes between those at the top and those at the bottom of the income distribution. For much of the 20th century, Western capitalist countries also endeavored to outdo the East European countries in terms of women's rights, fueling progressive social change. For example, the state socialists in the USSR and Eastern Europe were so successful at giving women economic opportunities outside the home that initially, for the two decades after the end of World War II, women's wage work was conflated with the evils of communism. The American way of life meant male breadwinners and female homemakers. But slowly, socialist championing of women's emancipation began to chip away at the Leave it to Beaver ideal. The Soviet launch of Sputnik in 1957 spurred American leaders to rethink the costs of maintaining traditional gender roles. They feared the state socialists enjoyed an advantage in technological development and why women have better sex under socialism. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna with us, taking your calls. Laura in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thanks so much, Tom. Hi, uh, Representative Khanna. I want to thank the House Democrats for passing H.R. 1, but it has little chance of passing the Senate. And uh, we are in real dire need for election integrity across the country. And it would be such a show of support for our democracy if the Democratic candidates for president would come together and commission an independent exit poll for the primaries in the Democratic primaries across the country and, uh, you know, state by state, and then uh, publish the results, make the results open to everything, this, everyone, you know, researchers, everyone. One of the problems with the media consortium that does the exit polls, they don't do them in some states. They just drop them. We have no control over that. We have no access to the data. And there are reports that they actually correct the results that they have obtained in the exit polls to fit the recommended results by the boards of elections, by the election division visions at the end of the night. So they're not real exiposes, and we don't have access to the data. Would you consider being 
a spokesperson for us, the American people, with the Democratic candidates for running for president. It would really work if they did it all together and then published the results. What do you think? Lord, it's an intriguing idea. I mean, are you saying that the, these are the exit polls on the election day itself that predict the winner? I dropped her. I'm sorry. She was talking about in the primaries, which, but in the general election, what we've seen over the last, since about 2000, is that our exit polls went haywire in about 10 or 15 states, largely only swing states, and almost always in favor of Republicans. And for a long time, many of us thought it was the voting machines being hacked. Increasingly, though, it's looking like what's happening is Republicans are throwing people off the voter registration rolls. Those people right. show up to vote. They're given a provisional ballot, which is never counted. They believe they voted. They tell the exit pollster that they voted for the Democrat Got because it. this is mostly yeah. done in minority neighborhoods. And then, you know, the exit polls, I mean, the exit polls showed in the last election that Hillary Clinton won, you know, four of the major swing states, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Hillary Clinton, according to the exit polls, won all those states. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think it's worth, uh, to the caller's point, having the DNC invest in some kind of exit polling that so that people have a better sense of what's going on in the primaries and general election. But I think the bigger issue, Tom, to your point, is how do we fight this issue of purging voter rolls that happened in Ohio and other states? How do we get people access to the ballot and open polling places? I mean, what's going on is the disenfranchisement of individuals, which which in my view is even bigger, as bad as Russian interference was, the biggest crime of the 2016 election was the disenfranchisement of minority voters. Amen. Kathy in Harbor City, California, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi there. I just want to say that let's look at the big picture of what's going on nationwide and all the corruption and political malice is all due to money. Everything that happens in California and all over the rest of the, is all the bottom line is money. And our food is bad because they want to save money. All our quality of products, food. So, Kathy, what's your question for Congressman Connor? Well, I want to know what he can do for us, and specifically in California, to help us meet the needs of the people. Not the elite people, but just the people every day that go to work eight hours a day and come home. What can you do to help regular people get their roads fixed and things like that? Kathy, thank you. Well, Kathy, I share your passion and frustration. I mean, I think that's why Congress's approval rating is at 28 percent. I mean, people say, why can't you just get an infrastructure bill to build roads and hospitals and airports? Why can't you just help get an education bill that puts more resources in our public schools so kids have better access to good teachers and to technology? Why can't we help create apprenticeships for people to, to get good jobs and safeguard people's pensions and Social Security and health care? And instead of working on all those things, we seem sidetracked by special interest issues. And that is partly because of all this money that's flooding into our political system. So my belief is that we've got to get that money out. It's why I don't take any PAC or lobbyist money and why I've called for citizen democracy dollars where every person, every voter should be a donor with $50 instead of all the big money. And it's my belief that the Democrats really need to run on a simple agenda which answers your question. What are you going to do to make people's lives better who've been struggling to even stay in the middle class? Yeah, it's remarkable. Congressman Kana, thanks so much for being with us today. Tom, thanks. My pleasure. My pleasure. And I look forward to the next time. 
Congressman Ro Khanna, the uh, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, his website, Khanna.house.gov, and you can tweet him, and tweet him a hi and a thank you to Rep. Ro Khanna, R-E-P-R-O-K-H-A-N-N-A. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Connie in Hemet, California. Hey, Connie, what's on your mind? I got to meet Joe Biden and his wife, Jill Biden. He spoke at the memorial service for the Granite Mountain Hotshots in Prescott, Arizona, in 2013. And my nephew was one of the 19 hotshots who perished. And two members from each hotshots family who wanted to could go back after the services and meet Joe Biden as well as John McCain and a number of other politicians. So I had an opportunity to meet his wife, Jill, to meet him, as did my brother. And I just want to say that he is a very affective person. He um, shook my hand with both arms as he shook my hand, looked right in my eyes. When we took a picture, he put his arm around me and was very, very kind. He spent probably four or five minutes with us, which was a lot because there were a lot of people back there. He found out that I had knocked on doors for him and Obama and was excited about that. And they told us when we knew there was going to be a speaker at this big national memorial service that it might be Obama or it could be Biden. But Biden was, from his own experience, having lost his wife and a daughter and his two sons being in the hospital for months after that tragedy, that kind of traumatic event could affect his empathy and his understanding and his almost maternal instinct toward other people who have suffered. I just found him to be extremely warm and caring and sincere. And I just wanted to put a light on that his background and what he has been through that might have made him, for a few years, he had to be mom and dad after that tragedy. Sure. And some of his actions almost remind me of what a mother would do. <laughs> I do think that he is a highly kinesthetic person. He's a very, very physical and very empathetic. I, I agree. Connie, thank you for sharing your story with us. I appreciate that. Very interesting. Helen in Fairmont, West Virginia. Hey, Helen, what's on your mind today? Well, I'd like to say that I think anything Joe Biden did there was a fatherly type thing. And I love Joe Biden. And if he ran for president, I'd definitely vote for him. And I'd prefer to see him run because I think he has the experience and the knowledge rather than somebody brand new. And people emphasize youth and everything, but I think there's wisdom in old age, too. I agree. And I would like to say a couple other things. I think maybe Mueller did the smart thing because he knew this would be a big political football. And remember how Al Capone got out. He was convicted of income tax evasion. Yep. So I would like to see Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit because that's where I believe he belongs. Helen, thank you so much for the call. Sharice in Polsbo, Washington. Hey, Sharice, your thoughts? Hi. I want to say that I've worked in corporate environments where men were demeaning to women as a way of boosting themselves. I've worked in restaurants in Seattle where the Seahawks, the Sonics, the Mariners all frequented there all the time. And men were demeaning there also to boost themselves in a way, but kind of in a different way in the corporate thing. There was a sense of entitlement with the athletes that they got to just, you know, say whatever they want, do whatever they want. But when I look at this Joe Biden thing, 
I think he was there to endorse her. He was validating her professional acumen by saying this is a good candidate for this position. I support her intelligence and her her education, all that kind of thing. So I don't know that his gesture wasn't just something like, a, you know, break a leg kind of thing. And he's but the kind of the unconscious thing there was, I'm the powerful guy and I'm bestowing my blessing on you. And see, I don't think that I think it was just a break a leg. Yay, I'm here to put a woman in the, you know, lieutenant governorship. And yeah, yeah. It, I, I'm, I I'm always so negative and I don't know what she gets from bringing this up. Did he follow up? Did he follow her hotel room? Was there more than just? No, there wasn't. And yeah. she's not even she's not even suggesting that. And, you know, and that. And yeah. And that gets to the point of, you know, she was a Bernie supporter. Cherise, thank you for the call. Carol and Palatka, Florida. Am I saying that right, Carol? Palatka. Palatka. What's up? Now, I've been listening to free speech all morning here, and I am really tired of all the liberals giving excuses to Joe Biden. A few years ago, when George Bush walked up behind Angela Merkel and started rubbing her neck, he didn't sniff her hair, didn't kiss her hair. We all called him an ass. Hmm. I mean, why why are liberals given Biden this? And this is not just a one-shot thing here. Biden has been accused of this his whole life. If he becomes a Democratic presidential contender, he will be eaten alive. How many women are going to vote for this grabber? Yeah. Carol, I think that politically speaking, I think you're absolutely right that this is really damaging to Biden's possibility of running for president. And if he becomes a serious contender or if he becomes the nominee of the Democratic Party, it's going to be very, very problematic. And you're right that, you know, we were all creeped out. And so is Angela Merkel when George Bush rubbed her shoulders, which I think was probably intended to be the same kind of gesture. I, the powerful white man, am giving you a little bit of my affection kind of thing. And yeah, spot on. Carol, thank you. Patricia in Bellevue, Washington. Patricia, what's up? Hi, I'm 85. I grew up uh, first 23 years in London. I never, ever was badly treated. I came across many people. But I got to this country in 58, and I was astounded about the treatment I got from men. I was propositioned in my own bedroom with my husband not too far away. Now, it's American tolerance. I hear all these women saying, oh, it wasn't so bad. All I can say is that we better not have our old white man for president because he doesn't understand what he should be, how he should be behaving. Any old white man. And um, uh, I've tolerated so much being kissed in a public yacht club by someone I'd never seen before. Hmm. It was a power play. I agree with you. It's a power play. I've hated it for the minute I've ever got mis- mistreated. And it's not appropriate. It's time they learned better. It is a power, a way to get rid of them, to, to, to show that they're stronger and better and whatever it is. It's demeaning. And I've hated it my whole life. So I'm 85. I do not forgive them just because the new generation is rebelling. It's just that we couldn't rebel before because we wouldn't have been listened to. Yeah, and I think it's a fine thing that the new generation is rebelling. This is We're watching, literally watching cultural change right in front of us, and it's a good and healthy thing. Patricia, thank you for sharing your thank story. You. 
We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.